You know I get nervous every single time I do a video, but I've felt this particular nervousness twice before, and I'll feel it at least one time more in the future. City on the Edge of Forever. Best of Both Worlds. Scorpion. In the Pale Moonlight. What all these episodes have in common is the thread of being commonly considered amongst popular opinion to be the best of their respective franchises, with a large amount of attention and analysis having already been done on each respective episode, or episodes, as the case may be. This is often quoted as the best episode of Star Trek, period, across all franchises. I don't know if I agree with that. But it's in the running. Originally it was actually going to be Vulcan, not Beta Z. Which I find interesting. Because the difference is strangely irrelevant from a tactical perspective and a geological perspective. That is to say, a physical, you know, terrain perspective. They actually mention in this very episode, uh, this is actually one, I, I believe this is the first time they truly establish what I've mentally referred to for many years as the home cluster, which is, and I wrote it down, Saul, Alpha Centauri, Vulcan, Teller Prime, and Doria, Beta Z. All of these worlds being very close together, and actually rises on that list too, but all these worlds being very close together and very close, more specifically, to Earth. And uh, this is something that actually is further expounded upon in Season 4 of Enterprise. So the fact that Beta Z is hit and then conquered, well, that gets across a point. Now, it gets across a point for us Trek geeks. I really do wish they had just had it be Vulcan. Not just because Vulcan's important to Star Trek fans, which would get across a point, but because Vulcan is basically next door to Earth. Uh, I want to say 16 light years, something like that. It's very, very close in interstellar terms. So the idea would be that the Dominion is succeeding at their war so well that they are actively making gains within spitting distance of Federation HQ. And, of course, Earth, which we care about. We're from that. Some of us are. <laughs> this is a good episode. But what I've come to realize going back through Season 6 is that all of Season 6 has actually been building to this episode. I don't think it was deliberate. But at the same time, there are so many connecting threads in Season 6 and Season 7. And as I mentioned, a lot less oversight from uh, producers and from executives. It's entirely possible this was a deliberate attempt to try and bind Thrones together. I keep making the semi-joke that Season 6 is the recurring season. And actually, there will be other recurring elements in this show, other than the obvious ones. But the strong thematic connection of the variance between the tangible and the intangible continues and effectively is, reaches its climax, its finale, with this episode. What matters more? The tangible of bringing Romulans into the war, or the intangible of the horrific cost that it will do to the soul of those involved. There's this nice bit at the beginning where he says, I have to justify what I did. 
And I bring that up because it's part of a twist that I want to mention later that I kind of forgot existed because I've seen this episode so many times. So they talk about <laughs> the weekly casualty list. Boy, that's a grim ritual, isn't it? Every Friday you go up and see how many other people that you knew died. And you look for people you recognize. Of course you do, because it's just names on a paper otherwise, right? Huh. The funny thing is we find out, probably for the first time it's officially confirmed, the one-two punch of the Romulan Treaty with the Dominion. As a consequence of that treaty, the Dominion can... Well, I don't want to say violated, but basically the Romulans are more willing to play ball than they are not, which means the Dominion has free access to Romulan territory in order to utilize as part of their strategic landscape. So they do, and they attack, and they destroy, and they pick away Federation ships and Klingon ships, and the Federation is... And the, I want to stress this, by the way. I keep saying the Federation is losing the war. It's probably worth noting at this point in time the Klingons are fully committed. So this is two of the big three losing a war against the Dominion. Or rather, against the pinky of the Dominion. Yeah. So Cisco wants proof. I mean, that makes sense. The Dominion are planning to conquer Romulus. We know that. We know how the founders work. We know how they think. It's actually already mentioned in a previous episode. They don't. It, it was in uh, Statistical Probabilities. They mentioned that the Dominion doesn't think in terms of now or tomorrow or next week. They th think in terms of years or decades or centuries. The Dominion will attack Romulus, period. And what's funny is multiple people bring that up, and none of them have any doubt of it whatsoever. The problem is they need some kind of proof of immediate attack to have something more concrete than what is effectively a form of speculation. Committing to war is a fairly big deal, after all. And that makes sense. We know that because we're the viewers. Cisco knows that because he's had personal interaction with the founders of the Dominion. But who else really knows the full totality of what the Dominion's going after here, other than Section 31, of course? So Garak is like, okay, yeah, no problem. We could find this proof. But uh, it may be a messy business, a bloody business. And Sisko says, I'm totally in. And Garak hesitates a second before he says, all right, I'm in. It is my opinion that at that exact moment, Garak recognized that Sisko, uh, how do I phrase this, was not fully committed. Or to be slightly more accurate, that Sisko didn't know what he was committing to. Not really. Cisco says he's involved in a bloody business, but let's be real. There is a difference between I will stalwartly stand up against the implacable foe and I will murder a friend in the back in order to accomplish a greater good. Like, both of those might have good intentions, but you can see how there is a gulf of difference between both actions. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm pointing it out because, well, to be perfectly blunt, because I have an old saying. Um, most people don't know how bad bad can get. Now, that sounds condescending, and I know that. I need to rework the phrase someday. But the idea behind the phrase is that there's... It's not like bad is a unilateral metric. It's not like there's one graph of bad, and it just goes up and down. No, there's types of bad. There's varieties of bad. There's complexities in bad. Cisco thinks he knows bad in this episode. And he does. 
of his particular variety. He knows of war. He knows of personal grief and anguish. He knows of pain. He knows of suffering. But he does not know of, well, Garak's variety of bad. The type of underhanded, dirty, um, morally unethical quandaries that Garrick can face and do. You remember that line, Garrick saying, humans have rules in war. I find they just make it more difficult to accomplish victory. You remember that? That's the difference between bad and bad. Hence the, the, the point of the phrase. I, I need to rephrase it someday. Because it doesn't really actually get across the point. So Garrick warns Sisko, and Sisko's like, yeah, sure. This is point one, by the way. And I'm pointing this out because this is the first time the what I what I usually call the third option is brought up. Now it's not really a third option here, but basically it feels like the point of the episode is to try and find evidence of what we know is fact, a lie to tell the truth, as I'm rather fond of saying, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um find proof of the fact that the Dominion are gonna attack Romulus, okay? That's the thrust of the goal. Now, that's all acceptable. That's morally acceptable. That's ethically acceptable. No problem. Excuse me? No problem. No issues. So, there is no evidence. We find nothing. All the people I talked to died. Huh. Strange. So, why don't we just make the evidence? This is where the telling a lie to tell the truth comes in. Because that is effectively what they're doing. And you'll notice that's only one step away from what they were planning to do. Yeah, they're faking the evidence, but the truth is still being presented. The Romulans are going to be attacked by the Dominion. That is a truth that both Sisko and Garrick are aware of, that we are aware of. So it's acceptable. Moral option number two. So we'll just fake it. And it's interesting how prepared Garrick seems to be for this plan. He pretty much has everything lined up and ready to go for this plan, uh, which is strange. I, I guess he's just good at coming up with stuff on the fly. It's not like he could have had this planned out from the beginning. As a personal headcanon, I've also perceived for a long time that Garrick has been planning something vaguely like this, probably for a while, possibly ever since he got back to D-Space 9, because uh, he's not an idiot, and he sees the problem here. This is, this is, this is, let's be, let's be honest. This is basic math. The Federation and the Klingons will lose. They need another partner. They need the Romulans. Because to be blunt, the Romulans are the only other power out there that can really change the balance of the power by themselves. They are the third of the big three. So, he already knew which senator to go after. He already knows how to try and convince him. So he tries to go ahead and find his thing. Okay, no problem. So he finds the person to to make it, uh, Tolar, uh, Graython Tolar is his name. Do me a favor and think about Graython Tolar as much as you care to. Think about what kind of person he is. This is someone who was sentenced to death by the Klingons, which may or may not sound like much, but what we do know about him other than his sniveling and his fear of Garrick is the fact that he decided to mm, forcefully insist Impella dance with him when she was otherwise occupied, and then st attempted to stab Quark in the chest when Quark decided to intervene. That's the kind of person this guy is. Why would Garrick select him? Oh, I know what you're thinking. Ah, oh, well, it's because he's so good at his craft. Well, obviously not, as we know from hindsight. So why him? 
the answer, if you'll forgive me, is admittedly self-apparent when you sit and think about it. He's expendable. No one will miss this guy. No one will mourn. Uh, by the way, this is the episode where Impella is actually named. I've actually referenced her before, the actress who plays her. and Like I said, she's going to be a semi-recurring character for the next season and a half. She doesn't get any lines until, I believe, the last episode. I could be wrong about that. Anyway, as the episode's going, I'm struck by how fascinating the pacing is. As things come up, it usually jumps forward, hours or in some cases days ahead, and just kind of cuts to the next scene. It's very efficient in what they show on camera. Now, this is relevant because you'd think, well, isn't that normal? Well, honestly, in Star Trek, no. Star Trek has a tendency to show a lot of the non-action on camera, usually because they're trying to pad out the runtime. In this episode, it almost feels like the opposite. They had so much to show, they had to cut out the usual sections that they would show. So, Garak mentions this guy, and then it cuts right to him being in a meeting with Sisko. No discussion with Gowron, no coercion of the Klingons, no transit of him, no security details, just bam, cut right to the action. It, it kind of makes the pace a little fast, but wonderfully done, because the pace is also helped by the in-between sections of Sisko talking to his log. Small side note, I love the fact that as Sisko's talking, he's slowly, well, I don't want to say undressing, but he, he's in full work uniform, and by the end, he's basically in his casual fatigues as he's talking throughout the course of the episode, bearing his soul in a more or less literal metaphor. So, okay, we're going to use this guy, no problem. We still have this option, we still have the moral possibility here, so it's okay. It's okay, we're okay, we've got this. So then he goes up topside, back to his thing, and then Oda says, Yeah, hey, Captain, we've got a problem. <laughs> so Odo gives him an out, no charge. No record. So, there's a wonderfully awkward... That's the wrong word. You can see how uncomfortable Cisco is bribing Quark here. It drives him nuts to do it. And he's just like... Okay. And you'll notice Cisco is so bothered by it, he doesn't even raise a protest. Quark, you'll notice... This, this is actually wonderfully subtle. Quark asks for the initial then hedges for more, and then holds himself back. Quark could have kept going, if he wanted to, because Sisso's kind of up against a wall on this one. But Quark, smartly, recognizes that pushing Sisko in this matter would probably be a stupid decision. And, well, despite what a certain previous episode might have you feel about who mourns for mourn, the fact is Quark is not that greedy. He recognizes when to hold off. So he does. And they have a bribe. <laughs> I do love how Odo gave him this out, by the way. It's just a nice little touch. So, meanwhile, now that we've got one moral quandary out of the way, we got another one. Biomimetic gel. Now, that's actually been brought up before in D-Space 9, and every time it has, it's been rare, valuable, and immeasurably dangerous. It's not just illegal. It's not produced in the strictest sense of the word. In short, it's not a regular product. It's not like there's a factory somewhere churning it out. It's very hard to come by. So Cisco's like, nope, we're done. Pause. And like seconds, seconds later. And... Okay. 
This is interesting because Cisco is very good at working with and through people diplomatically and as a leader. But he's completely out of his element at every step of this process, of this episode. Now that makes sense because, well, Cisco's the kind of guy who wears his empathy, his emotions, his moral standard on his sleeve. He will bend or break the rules in order to accomplish what he feels is right, but it's all in the service of what is right. To do what is wrong in order to accomplish what is correct is actually the complete inverse of what he's used to doing. So this whole time, he's just twisting himself up into a knot as he tries to value the tangible over the intangible, which, if you're paying attention, is, again, the exact opposite of what he's been doing this whole show, really, but especially this season. Cisco has always been the one on the side of the intangible. And... That's, I mean, that's why in statistical probabilities, I know this just keeps coming up, but it just keeps being relevant. That's why he was the one who said, no, we're not going to surrender. We're not going to bend down and do this. I'm not going to ask people to survive rather than to live. Survival is insufficient. So he argued for the intangibles. And now it's like, okay, okay. Cisco demands the biomimetic gel from Bashir. Bashir, meanwhile, has been on a shift from the tangible to the intangible. So naturally, he protests. And when he's shut down hard, he's just like, okay. Remember, this is one episode after he just had to deal with Section 31. What do you think is going through Bashir's mind right now? So, they get the biomimetic gel. Okay. They go ahead and see the program. I love how the program is actually just an alteration of an existing program. They only mention that with like two lines of dialogue briefly. But the idea is they do actually have a recording of some meeting between Damar and Weyun and whoever else. And they just, in the middle of it, they chop out a section and replace it with the we're going to attack Romulus plan. Which makes perfect sense. The more truth you have, the easier it is to swallow the lie. Uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I mean, it's a basic concept, right? So, they show it off. Nice little touch. Cisco attacks Slimo, Tolar. Now, what I like about that scene, it's, I know some people have brought up objections about that scene because they feel it's one of the only missteps of the show. Well, I do think that it is Cisco going a bit far. The truth is... What I'm seeing is Cisco once again repeating the pattern of having no idea what he's doing. Cisco, as weird as this may sound, is actually being a complete amateur in that scene. It is baseline thuggery or underhandedry or being a criminally, whatever you want to call it. What he's doing is something you could hire some guy off the street for five bucks to do. Garak is the one who then immediately responds with, Why don't you go back to your quarters? I'll be along shortly to say hello. And it is Garak who is the terrifying one there, who accurately and correctly gets across the threat that Sisko was attempting to do. Thus we see once again, Sisko is in completely out of his element, and Garak, he is completely in his element. Oh yeah, funny little note, he mentions he'll go to visit him later. The next thing we find out is that poor gentleman is gone. Probably vaporized. No trace. Just funny to think about. So, 
Garak then mentions, this is even funnier, that he'll sneak aboard the senator's ship while he's over. Of course he will. Why wouldn't he? And he even outlines a truthful reason why he would do that. Getting intel on the Dominion or the Romulans. And don't worry, I won't get caught. There's only two people there. It'll be fine. And Sisko's like, okay. As long as you don't get caught, that's all I care about. Now, Garrick, of course, lies to Sisko, but why wouldn't he? Sisko would say no or raise protest if he knew what Garrick was doing. This is why Garak keeps him out of the loop for the entire plan. And, of course, we know why Garak wanted to go on the ship, don't we? Side note. One of the things I find strange here, and I didn't remember this until rewatching, is that there's actually a lot of evidence that something was going on at about this point in time. There are actual live witnesses to the incident with Blue Man. There's the fact that they scorned off an entire section of the station for an implicit visit of a cloaked Romulan ship for an unknown period of time. And an unknown s signal that came in that they didn't respond to. And just all sorts of little bits of information that if someone were really to try and dig, they would find out about. And yes, I'm aware of the New Frontier book. I just, I just pointed out that there's a lot more evidence behind than I thought. After all, Starfleet Command gave this plan their blessing. Don't forget. So... Stephen McCaddy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is the gentleman who plays Senator Vrenak. Now, when I think of Senator Vrenak in memory prior to rewatching this episode, I think of one of two things. The stupid meme, or the sniveling, you know, schneid person. I didn't realize that that's false. He comes across as a little bit arrogant, but only at the beginning. He's actually very reasonable and understandable, and comes across, he basically treats Sisko as an equal, and someone who he feels bad for, pities, but there's no actual sn sniveling there. I forgot how decent he comes across. But in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. Because if he was some, <laughs> yeah, person, then it would, for the audience, be a lot more acceptable for him to uh, die. But instead what we see is a man who rather accurately points out they have shipyards churning out ship after ship, and you have destroyed shipyards, which you're still rebuilding. They are producing countless Jem'Hadar, breeding them en masse, and you have a manpower shortage. And I think there was another big point. Oh yes, they are willing to win at any cost, and you're reaching out for peace. He doesn't say these condescendingly. He just says them because they're facts. He is rather matter-of-factly looking at the situation and saying, this is what is. You probably remember that line as well, right? That came up in, oh God, I can never, the Benny episode. I can never think of the name of it. The Benny episode. I'm not attending to what should be, I'm attending to what is. And that's the Romulan's approach. And once again, we see the parallels between the corrupt cops and the Dominion. So, they have a discussion about things. And what I really love is Sisko points out the obvious. Right now, you have three enemies surrounding you. If the Dominion wins, you will have one enemy surrounding you, which is a far more terrifying and unified force. And Vrenak agrees because Sisko is making another valid point, and it is ultimately the only point that needs to be made from the purely political aspect of things. Ultimately, Vrenak seems willing to listen, willing to go on board with this, but he does need proof. 
he needs something other than speculation. After all, he would have no trust or faith in something that Starfleet says. And, as I've said many times before, we understand the Founders. As does Cisco, they don't. So they don't know what we know. So, he decides to go and do that. And there's, there's this nice little point where he's having this Romulan drink. It's not Romulan ale, it's something else. He names it, I forget it. It's very good. Mm. I almost let myself forget it was fake for just a second. It's a very nice, subtle detail that I don't think I've ever noticed before. But it's foreshadowing. It helps to showcase that Vrenek is a meticulous man. And it helps to show that, even though something may seem to be real, he's going to oust it as a fake. And he does. It's a fake! And so... <laughs> and this is the build-up. This is the really fun part of the episode. Because what ha what's happening here... You remember I talked about this during... Oh, God, the, the, the Crime Syndicate episode. It was just a few episodes ago. I'm losing names in my head. Please forgive me. In that episode, I mentioned how dangerous a false flag situation or scenario is. Because if it, it, it's low gain, but high risk, as I mentioned back then. So if the Federation has found out planting a false flag against the Romulans, that's horrifying. And the episode makes it very clear, Cisco makes it very clear, just how damaging this will be when discovered. And he, of course talks about this after being discovered. It's a fake, etc. This is going to uh, screw everyone over forever. Now, the episode... This is, this is quite clever. The episode has been constructed up until this point that that's what his log is about. Explaining how he screwed up. Remember, right at the beginning, I need to justify what I did. I need to see where it went wrong and where I went wrong. The whole episode in, in its framing device is up until this point designed to show Cisco giving his speech, his, his lamentation about the great flaw, the great mistake, the great error that he made. And so the episode makes it seem like this is it. Then he finds out about the destroyed shuttle. And he's livid. He's so angry. Because he understands immediately. The confrontation, the final twist, between Cisco and Garak is an absolutely amazing bit of television, in my opinion. Because at first... Cisco is just still has some of his his masks, some of his walls up, and so does Garak. After Cisco hits him the second time, all of that goes away, and what you see is the real Cisco and the real Garak. Garak spares him not an inch, and Cisco is furious about it, but again is enough of an intelligent commander to recognize the logic in everything Garak is saying. That's not like he can do anything about it, anyways, right? But more to the point, Garak just lays into him. That's why you came to me, isn't it? Because you wanted me to do the things you know you couldn't do. <laughs> it's... God, it's, it, I, just, I just wanted to gush about it, because it's poetry. Unfortunately, I have so little to say in specific about that scene, because it is just an absolutely glorious scene as Garak lays out the real plan, which he's probably had since the beginning. 
It's most likely he wouldn't have detonated the thing if the rod had passed inspection and allowed Cranach to live and return with it. But, well, if it didn't pass inspection, well, that's what the bomb's for. And probably very precisely placed to make sure that it kills everyone on board, but spares the ship itself and cargo so that that rod can then be recovered. Within two weeks, because we know this, because I don't, I don't remember the exact date. I don't think they give it. But they mention how from the beginning of the plan to the recital of it is two weeks. So within that two-week period, very shortly thereafter, the Romulans declare war on the Dominion in what is effectively a surprise strike and start immediately attacking Dominion ships and outposts. Now, this also beautifully ties back in to statistical probabilities. In that episode, one person acting independently, changed a mathematically crafted out plan. One person who was mathematically superior lost a game of darts. And now two people, and the various people they have been working through and manipulating, have just managed to change the entire course of the war far ahead of schedule. If you remember, in the plans they mentioned, they mentioned that the Romulan Star Empire would eventually turn against the Dominion in about a year. By that point, they don't say this outright, but the implication is by that point it would be too late. But the Romulans joining the war now? Well, that's a little different, isn't it? Especially since the Romulans joined the war basically as a bit of a surprise attack. I, I love the bit Garak mentions. The more the Dominion denies it, the more the Romulans believe they did it. Because that's how the Romulans think. That's what they would do. I want you to picture every slimy, sniveling Vorta you've ever seen saying, the Dominion values its peaceful cooperation with the Romulan Star Empire. We find it ghastly that you would ever even think that we would assassinate one of your members on a, a diplomatic mission. There's certainly no efforts or intention to attack the Romulan Star Empire. How could you even consider such a thing? <laughs> I mean, it's almost too believable, isn't it? Now, I have one or two final thoughts here. Thought number one. Several times in the episode, and I kept pointing this out, the episode gave us the option to do the moral way out, the third way out, and it kept being pulled away from us. In the end, there was no third way out. Cisco had to do wrong in order to accomplish correct. The end. And as Garak says, it's going to cost the life of one Romulan senator, one criminal, and the self-respect of one Starfleet officer. And that is, if we're being honest, a bargain. So, so in, in short, they hit the dilemma, and they didn't flinch away from it. And I know this sounds strange, but as much as I do enjoy the third option, and I think that it's a good aspect of storytelling if done properly... I do think there is still power in occasionally forcing the characters to not have a third option and have to choose, which is what they did in this episode. Although, what's funny is it was actually Garrick who made the choice, not anyone else. <laughs> Next point I want to mention is uh, section 31. <laughs> I've So section 31 exists. We know this because they were invented last episode. Spoilers, we also know that Section 31 has Koval on 
on Romulus and in, infiltrated into the Romulan Star Empire. And given his position in power, I'd say he's been there for a while, probably by this point in time, which is relevant because I'd like to think, this is just my headcanon, but I'd like to think that Section 31 has been, shall we say, sowing the seeds of Romulan cooperation against the Dominion for some time. Now, because of the political situation, they couldn't just manipulate them into war. Not really. They didn't have the scope and reach to do that with their infiltrators and with their agents. But they could sow a bunch of seeds. They could try to push things so that they're at least at full readiness, for example, just in case the Dominion attack. We need to make sure that we're fully uh, mobilized at all times, just, just, just for future thought. You know, little things like that. I mention this because I like to think that after the the operation of this episode succeeded, the Section 31 agents or agent basically leapt on it and were like, boom! And that's one of the reasons why the Rhyme Star Empire was willing and able to go to war within two weeks. Which, if you know anything about you know politics on a grand scale, going from, you know, cooperation and being and peaceful interaction to full-out war in two weeks is a hell of a thing. But again, they were probably already mobilized, weren't they? There's this bit where Cisco mentions there's a party that he's going to be going to to celebrate the Romulans joining the war. Of course they are. That is a joyous occasion. That is the best news they've gotten uh, all season, actually. Even retaking Deep Space Nine didn't mean even remotely as much as the Romulans joining the war on their side. I imagine that's going to be one hell of a party. I'm reminded of something that happened, oh, what was the name of that episode? Uh, Rules of Engagement, I believe, where Worf was accused of attacking an innocent freighter. You remember that one? At the end of that episode, they were having a party to celebrate Worf getting off the hook. And Worf says, I don't want to go to a party. And Sisko says, that's nice. One of the jobs of being a commander is making sure that you smile for your troops to maintain morale and to be part of the, part of the group, part of the team. So Cisco is going to have to do that very same thing in going to this yay for Romulans party. Final note. One of the biggest points of contention in this episode is that this is too dark for a Starfleet officer. As I mentioned last episode, and as has come up several times before, the ideals of Star Trek are that we are better. That we, are just, that we have become a better people by the time Star Trek rolls around. I would argue that's probably the central core concept of the entire franchise. Now, <laughs> that being stated, I know a lot of people feel that this is a core betrayal, that this is unacceptable, that everything that Cisco did and was a, was a knowing, willful accessory to is unacceptable. And that's a very valid interpretation. And as ever and always, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on whether this is acceptable or good or bad or awful or terrible, anything in between. But I want to share one last point, and I scribbled it down. I, I ran out of space on my notebook here. Um, at the very end, he says, I will learn to live with it. Because I can live with it. I can live with it. Computer, delete record. Now, those final lines and the way he says them are, in my opinion, incredibly important. Because it's all about what's going on in the mind of Benjamin Sisko. I'm one of those strange people who's always believed that evil is, in large part, about intent, not action. And thus, 
the intent of Benjamin Sisko here is very important to me. Now, many people have interpreted those final lines in many different ways. I actually had a chat with a friend many years ago. This is like 10 years ago. Eh, no, more like 13 years ago at this point. Um, where he, be he believed that that meant that Cisco was, was being sincere. He was like relaxing, calming himself. I can live with this. This is, this is great. I can actually live with this. My interpretation is different. I think that he is, uh, lying to himself, that he is trying to convince himself he can live with this because he can't, because this bothers him. Now, obviously any interpretation on that is valid, and I, I am, as ever, curious of yours, but I mention this because I have a lorium called Justice Lords and Cisco. Now, <laughs> I know I've brought it up before, but this episode is the thing that codified Cisco as the second half of that, that equation. Because the whole difference between a Justice Lord and a Cisco is a Justice Lord would do this and not bat an eyelash. To put it into simplistic terms, Garrick is a Justice Lord. But a Cisco is someone who will do it because both sides will do the hard things and make the hard calls and do the unpleasant things for some, for, for, for some ends that they believe justify their means. But a Cisco will hate themselves for it. They will regret it. They will feel guilty. It will anguish them that they had to bypass their personal code of ethics or morality or just general good in order to accomplish this. And that is my interpretation of Cisco at the very end. That for all he has done, he regrets every moment of it. He would still do it because he has to. But that does not mean he accepts it. And that is a Cisco. Ladies and gentlemen, I really hope you've enjoyed my rumination on this fantastic episode. I will see you guys next time.